welcome back to Half Wheel, and, and I am with my co-host, and as I've mentioned quite a few times before, captain of the podcast, Scott Barrow. Welcome, Scotty. Thanks, Ross. Good to be here, mate. It's been a been a little bit of a gap, but uh, we're we're ready to go. You might recall a little while ago, quite a while ago now, but uh, we had we had a, a really good chat with Tommy Nankervis, the master of winning. So we we put out an episode part one that was. Um, centred around Tommy's impending race that he had coming up, the Melbourne to Warrnambool. Now, in the lead-up to that, the race actually got cancelled due to COVID, Um, but then Mm. it was, I think it might have been delayed until uh, April. Yeah, Yeah. it was like 10 weeks. It was pushed back 10 weeks. Yeah, yeah. so that race has been run and won, and the good friend of the podcast, Tommy Nankervis, actually finished in 23rd position. Which was a great effort. Mm. Um, Fourteen seconds behind the eventual winner, Jensen Plowright. Um, but mm. yeah, Tommy um, was very much in the mix there by the looks of things. Yeah, yeah. For, um, I spoke to him about this, and yeah, obviously, if people want to listen, they can go back and listen to that episode with Tommy. But um, I spoke to him about it, and the bunch pretty much stayed together the whole day because it was a tail crosswind, so it made everything a bit easier for everyone. So it stuck together. And he was feeling shocking for hours and hours. It's like a seven-hour race. He was feeling shocking for most of the day. And then all of a sudden, he started feeling really good and really, really good. And, he's, and he was sitting in the bunch. He was perfect. There was no one really dangerous off the front. So he was sort of starting to say to himself, shit, I'm going to win this. I'm going to win this. Because what did you say? He finished 23rd, did you say? 23rd position, yeah. 23rd. So this is a guy who's finished in the top 10 multiple times and on the podium once and has always really wanted to try and win this race. Um, so he's thinking he's starting to really feel really confident. And then um, in the last, you would have seen it, Ross, in the last 50Ks, there was constant surges off the front, groups trying to get away. And then in the last 5Ks or maybe 10Ks, you know, 5 to 10Ks, a big group sort of just clipped off the front and the rest of the pelotons sort of just didn't go with them up a climb. And then, so that was a gap that was manageable. And it was about 20 riders, wasn't it? About eight, 17 or 18 or even 20 yeah. riders. And then, the, and then coming into the last K, a rider jumped out of that bunch. And, you know, for about, as Jensen Plower, about four, probably about a 400, 500 metre attack to win the, the race. So Tommy was sitting in it, sitting in there. And I think he got done up a little bit by his tactics because he was sitting in there thinking there's some Olympic track level riders and fast sprinters in the main bunch they will pull that breakaway back because you know they don't want to let those guys go and they ended up just sitting up essentially so um tommy thought that they would pull it back and and, because he was a one-man band pretty much they didn't and so in the end he was end up fighting for 23rd spot Nothing to sneeze at, um, you know, for the for the common man, obviously, you know, and people might have got this inclination as they listen to Tommy's interview that he's a high performer and, and sets high standards and, and and the love he has for that race, he's really invested in it. Um, so whilst he may have been a little disappointed with how it all panned out in terms of top 10 calculations or even, you know, the opportunity to yeah. win it, um, I mean, 23rd place is nothing to sneeze at, is it? Mm. Yeah. And straight away, yeah, no, it's not. And and I was speaking to him, he's like, ah, well, now I've got to do it again next year. Yeah. Because what he was trying to do was get a win or a podium this year and so he could stop doing it. <laughs> he goes, ah, fuck it, now I've got to do it again next year. I'll be back, he so, says. Yeah. 
And he loves doing it, but it's being able to fit in the amount of training you need to be able to do to, to do a 270k race. Uh, for those who don't know, and we referred to this in our last episode, the Melbourne to Warrnambool is the second oldest um, one-day race in the world, uh, only behind um, La Doyenne, the Liège, Baston Liège. So it's got its own legitimate place in cycling um, folklore. So it's a big deal. Yeah, and so he was always really keen to, to win it because his dad and the grandfather had also been keen racing cyclists and they'd also done it. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, a, as I've mentioned before, it was a fantastic introduction to that race and, and just to get Tommy's thoughts on it. Um, and we released it first, you know, in this block of content that we had from Tommy, we released it first due to the fact that the warning was coming up. What we get to do now, Scotty, is to delve into mm. Tommy's career from start to, to present day. And when people listen to this, when fans listen to this podcast and what Tommy has to say in the interview, they'll get a real insight into what's got into where he is today and, and the career that he's had. Because, um, my goodness, I mean, we call this um, Tommy Nankervis the master of winning, and you begin to find out why when you have a listen to him speak. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so this one, it, it talks about his a bit of his experience in racing and how he got into cycling. And then we also asked him about training and um, racing tips, if you like, and then common opportunities that racers have or mistakes they might be making. So we tap into his training and racing expertise, and we also tap into his own career and pathway into cycling and who he raced with. So we keep talking about it. Again, if you didn't hear the previous episode, you might like to go back. But for those who didn't and maybe might not, Here's his record. This is why we um, thought we'd talk to him. And he's also been helping me a bit, which has been fantastic. Hey, Scotty, take a deep breath before you go through this because there's quite a bit to get through. Yeah, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step it through nice and clearly. So here we go. Tommy Nankers has won road races at club, regional, state, national, Oceania and pro levels. He raced for 10 years professional overseas in Belgium, and the US. He raced at pretty much the continental, pro-continental level, which is like the second tier. But as we know, often he's racing against the best teams like the World Tour teams as well, um, because obviously they mix up the levels that go in races. So sometimes he was against the best riders and the best teams. He won pro commesses in Belgium, and they are some of the hardest races you can win no matter what level you're at. So he spent 10 years over there. He moved back to Australia around 2013, I think it was, and then he spent three years uh, riding in the NRS team, budget forklifts, so still stayed at a high level there. He's a third-generation racing cyclist, like I said. When he moved back to Australia, um, he went back to his club, which is the, uh, the Carnegie Caulfield Cycling Club, one of the most esteemed and biggest clubs in Australia, and he's been on the committee there since 2014, so he's giving back to the community of cycling as well. And then since then, mostly after stepping out of the, the NRS, uh, becoming a father, all that sort of stuff, um, he's been, mostly been doing club criterions and also the one-day races like Melbourne or Warrnambool. And his record since then has been unbelievable. It's almost like big fish, little pond sort of stuff, Ross. In 2017, he had 25 wins. And then from 2014 to 2020, so that's a period of about five years, the lowest placing he had in Criterions was third. So in five years, he didn't finish off the step. It's unbelievable. That's incredible. And then finally, just to add a bit more to it, I think, he's won races in Australia, USA, in Canada, in Belgium, in France, and he's podium or top 10 in Uruguay, Argentina, 
Holland, the Netherlands, Trinidad and Tobago, and China. So while there are races, bike races that are, have raced at a higher level than Tommy, no doubt, you would have to say, Ross, the thing that grabs me, I really feel like he is, has got so much mastery in this because you don't win all over the joint if you don't know something about winning. And probably then the only reason why he might not have been at the world tour level is probably just he didn't have enough genetics in it because he's shown that really he's won in every way you could conceivably win on the track, on the road. So we, we are really hearing from somebody who's got something. I really reckon that. And that's why the reason, of course, you know, he's not Peter Sagan, but he's probably milked as much out of himself as Peter Sagan has, possibly even more. So that's why we've got him. Yep, definitely. Pound for pound, he's, you know, he'd measure up mm. um, just as well. So, look, without any further ado, we urge you to enjoy this because we certainly did having a chat to him. So here is part two, Tommy Nankervis, the master of winning. I love to hear how you started out. How did you get into cycling? And how did you sort of develop or, or identify the fact that you've got some ability and you could make a living out of it? Uh, well, they're two pretty massively different stories. But the way – so my, my thing's growing up is always footy and – I played in the, the TAC Cup or whatever it's called now for Sandy Dragons. Um, and I was in the interleague team for a couple of years from Robin Saints. I was a captain of that one year. So footy was mostly my thing. And then I got into, and I was always doing athletics as well because I was naturally a, a fast runner when I was young. And I kind of, I don't know, I probably wasn't fast. Enough. I did the, you know, I was in the relay team at, you know, our inter-school sports comp and stuff like that, the ACC, which my school was in. And I was, my other thing was like javelin and shot put when I was doing athletics. But once I get to the end of athletics days, I was kind of thinking, and even footy, I was starting to get like itching to be a bit of a bike rider. And my grandpa was a pro when he was young and dad raced at a pretty high level when, when he was young before he drifted out of the sport and got a driver's license and stuff. And I always just wanted to be a track rider. And we had a velodrome down the road from this and I was yeah, I started wanting to be into bikes, but I never really wanted to ask. I was a bit shy to ask dad and my grandpa. And one day when I was maybe in year eight or something, I asked, or year seven, I asked if I could uh, get into it. And it's, it's funny because they, they're all about good equipment and bikes and stuff like that. And, you know, I'd ask for bikes and we didn't have like good bikes lying around or anything like that for me to get into. And um, dad said one day to ask my grandpa about getting into bikes and I asked him and he says, save up for bandages. And he walked off and that was the end of it. <laughs> And I was like, oh, how awesome. Like, I, was, I was pretty gutted, actually. It took me about a year to ask him again. And then I asked him again maybe a year later, and he gave me the same answer. But then maybe a month or two later, he'd sent me, like, all the clippings of, you know, in the back of the paper, how you got the race results back in the day yeah. in the back of the sports section, just those little rundown of names and stuff. And he'd cut all that stuff out, and he sent me it in, a, in, the, in the post. And it was just a bunch of names, really. But uh, that was about all I got out of them. And then... I used to go, there's a famous Australian cyclist. Some would say he's one of our best ever riders, Sid Patterson. He had a bike shop a couple of k's from, I'm at the folks' house now, a couple of k's down the road from here, pretty close to the Carnegie Velodrome as well. And I'd be, I'd always hang out there and he had a track bike in the shop and no other shops had a track bike and track was what I wanted to get into. And I thought that my attributes as an athlete, like explosive power and stuff, I, did, mm. I actually, funnily enough, did weightlifting at school as well. Um, actually, I've got a state medal in that as well. You can chuck that on the <laughs> Elmaris. <laughs> good, <laughs> um, good. And then uh, 
yeah, Sid, Sid said to me, oh, are you interested in getting into bikes? And I was like, yeah, I am actually. And he says, oh, get, uh, meet me here on Thursday at 4.30 or whatever. And so I went down after, after school in my, uh, in my board shorts and my T-shirt and he drove me down to the velodrome and he introduced me to the, to the club and got me started in cycling. So really? it was about an 18-month or two-year process trying to get my dad and grandpa to get me into the sport. And we have a velodrome like, literally on the same block as what we grew up on. And yeah, I got introduced to the sport by Sid Patterson. And one of the greats. Yeah, one of our best ever, like multiple world champion and like superstar. And he actually then spent till, pretty much till he, till he ended up dying. He, he mentored me and helped me out heaps and he was great for me and, you know, gave me stuff and, you know, never let me pay for anything to do with my bikes right from day one. And uh, it's funny because I'm actually getting goosebumps talking about it. But when he died, the first race, I actually got heaps of goosebumps now. Um, the first race after he died was the Melbourne Cup on wheels and I was not quite first year under-19s and you had to be under-19s to race and they wanted under-19s to go up early. So my birthday's in January, but you could go up when the season started in November. And so my very first race in the elite ranks, I made the final in the Sid Patterson, oh, well, sorry, the Melbourne Cup on wheels, which my grandpa coincidentally won in 1957. Yeah. Uh, he, I think Sid Patterson was second in it actually, but the first race that I did, I got, I think I won my heat and then in the final, I just got a bit intimidated, but I came like fifth or sixth in the final. But we all had to race with a black ribbon for Sid. And then a few years later, they introduced the Sid Patterson Grand Prix and, and I won that. And then I didn't win it again, but I got third in it a couple more times. And then I also, on the same night as the Sid Patterson Grand Prix, they hosted the Champion of Champions wheel race, which was for all the wheel race winners from a year. And I won that as well. So there's been something, something he's done carried through with me the, the whole way since the start, which has been pretty special. And I'm pretty big on traditions and the history of our great sport and all that stuff. So, yeah, I'm pretty lucky to have that connection to, or even stronger connection to the history of Australian cycling. That's awesome. Yeah. I did tell you I had a good story about that, but I don't think I've told you that one before, have I? No, you haven't told me that one before. That's, that's amazing shit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you got those great results with track. So how much further did track go for you? Uh, under 19s, me and a couple of other guys. I got a couple of medals at nationals, got a gold and a, a silver in the Kieran, but everyone crashed, so it wasn't really a silver. But I started, I wasn't as, there were younger guys coming through the ranks that were faster than me. And then uh, I was faster than all the endurance guys, but then there were younger sprinters coming through that were faster than me at sprinting. Mm. and I had a natural – I had – I could act – like sprinters couldn't usually do anything after they'd gone hard, but I still could do something after I'd been going hard, so I thought I'd change the track endurance, but then had a grumpy coach who made me kind of not really very inspired for anything to do with track training, and I started to kind of drift out of it and did a bit more road stuff and then tried to do track endurance, but then that kind of brought me to a bit of uh, interest in criteriums and road, and then I watched the, a couple of those old – Roubaix videos with uh, Museo winning, you know, the Mappe days when they're riding through the mud and all that. And yeah. I've got uh, a couple of those DVDs and then I was like, oh, I want to race Roubaix. That's what I have to do. <laughs> so then I thought oh, if I would start doing track endurance led to crit racing naturally. Yeah. And then, yeah, I wanted to go and race in, um, well, try and race Roubaix, which never happened. But I, uh, I've raced on a lot of the cobbled sections, like racing in France and stuff. You use a lot of the section from my East Race or a, mm. 
regional race that they do Kermises on and you go over the same sector, like that, you know, the Monzon Pavel or something, yep. you go that sector, you know, 15 times in a race or something like that. And that's the, that's the race. But each sector has kind of got its own circuit race. Mm. Which is pretty cool. Um, now, now, can I just then, jump in, Tommy? Those cobbles and Monsell on Pavé, that's the last major sector in Roubaix, really, the, of consequence. Are they as bad as everyone says, or are they just like riding down a dirt road? Like, you've got to tell us, put us straight. Oh, some of, some of them bad. I couldn't, I could, to be honest, I couldn't tell you with the confusion of trying to learn a different language and <laughs> all that stuff. I couldn't tell you for, for certain what, what was what. What each one was like, like the name of that and the yeah, right. recollection yeah. of the Pavé. Yeah. But, some of them were just ridiculous. Like you'd you'd hit them. Yeah. I remember the the first time I the first race I did in Belgium, or the yeah the first race, the first race I did with Cobble Sector. Yeah, you hit that thing, and I was like, everyone's going like fifty something k's an hour, and we hit these cobbles, and you go, I'm going to piss myself. I'm going to shit myself. I don't know what I'm going to do here. It's like it almost shakes every single thing out of you. Yeah, sitting at a food hall after uh, after the race, and I couldn't move my hands. They were like stuck like this. Yeah, and it hurt. It felt like they were like breaking all the cartilage to bend them and straighten them. And I've been holding onto my bars too tight, and uh, yeah. you just like, like things like that. So some of them, so other ones you hit. Like I actually, I was pretty good on cobbles. I say this like there's guys who were superstars on cobbles, but I was a hack compared to them. But but I imagine you that you'd be pretty good because you can hold that strong speed and power on those. Yeah, flats you got it. You got it. And I'm, I've got a. One of my strengths as a bike rider is just understanding, like having an efficiency on the bike and learning how to, you know, you, you spend your whole life trying to do perfect circles or whatever. But my, yeah, like I've tried Zwift and I'm terrible at Zwift, but, but there's like a break on your, for the full pedal stroke. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the road, you don't have that. You, you learn how to hum across the top of the efficient part of the pedal. But, and yeah. you can't teach that. And I couldn't teach it. And yeah. God knows how you'd teach it. But, Maybe if you're soft and you're weak, you learn how to find the most efficient way to make your bike go a bit faster without doing the work. And something I could do, I could go over cobbles super, super fast when I had to. But then I, uh, there's a couple of those sectors that you mentioned and like you, I've hit them when I've been cooked and I just like, you basically come to a standstill or you yeah. collapse into a hole and you puncture, like a hole is in a hole where there's a missing cobblestone mm. and then you're flat or you break a wheel or something happens. There's not... It's hard to explain, but you actually like you're doing when you see guys doing two k's an hour on cobbles. Mm. That's legit. They're trying their hardest, and the lights just go out just on one loss of momentum. Yeah. Mm. And then you'd see like a boonin or something, and he'd just be humming over the top. And this is oh, th- we're talking like you know over ten years ago now, so the equipment's changed so much. But yeah, the, um, yeah, it's uh, some of them are, some of them are filthy. Mm. And then you come out, you don't you don't even come out of the cobbles onto this nice fast pavement. You just come out onto this dead shitbox concrete like <laughs> it's not it's not even good like finish the cobble or then yeah and they're, they're all going up or downhill they're not really flat so that kind of right. stings the, the legs as well and takes all the momentum out of you so yeah. we've often spoken about um, the attraction or the desire to to get on just just experience the parlay scotty i think we've spoken about it once or twice um, right at this mm. point tommy's not painting the greatest picture i'm not sure i really want to get over like- there and experience it <laughs> Yeah, I've got a dual suspension mountain bike and I'm very happy to take that with me because I reckon I can hit one of them and either just bounce off or just stop dead. You can try all along the Bluestone roads, but they're not the same. The cobbles nah. are there a lot smaller and they're a bit more. The Bluestones here are harder to ride on than the um, than the cobbles are there. So you mentioned at the start how footy was the main driver at that point. At what stage did you, or was it you that identified that 
okay, let's put footy to the background. I think cycling is now my main love. Was that you that made that decision solely or did the um, urgings come from other people? Oh, that's a good question. I had a shit coach. Uh, <laughs> I grew up playing for a team and I loved it and the team folded because we didn't have enough numbers. And I went to this other team and they, yeah, I was a captain of the interleague team and I was, my starting position in my local team was the bench. <laughs> so not very motivating to play footy. So... Yeah, that pretty much made that decision for me. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. It could be as simple as that. And yeah. I actually, I actually left in the middle of a game, uh, or quarter time, or something. So, end of my footy days. Yeah, mm. grabbed my bag, went over my kit. So, <laughs> that was the end of footy for me. And uh, and I was still always itching to play more. And I just love. See, like I'm not a Cardinals fan, but this is red and blue because I go for the D's, and I still love my footy. But it's uh, yeah, it's not for me to play anymore. But yeah, mm. I was actually I was going to play with my brother in one of those. Olds and Bolts teams this year, a couple of games. Mm. That's why actually well, I started running in the winter. But right, yeah, right. I, I know my body's probably a bit delicate for footy now. But yeah. different yeah. type of hardness. It would have been fun to run the ground about ten times and kick ten goals, but <laughs> yeah, we'll never know now. Yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> your half wheeling thing that you wanted me to do. Yeah, like oath. No, we need we need more of that. We need more of that. Let it out. Let it out. Yeah. So you got over there uh, racing in Belgium and northern France, Tommy, and then you, then you went to the US. Was there anything – what was significant in that period for you? Uh, there's another cool story. So I had this great coach, this awesome coach that in my first year I was trying to be a roadie and he – Paul Rigari, he won the Warney off scratch and he trained me up and taught me heaps about just passion of being a road rider and just being hard and being like – I was like, oh, I'm a sprinter, I'm a sprinter. He's like, you're not a sprinter. You just have to be good at everything on the road. You have to be yeah. hard. You have to be tough. You have to – but all these other things, just like embracing all the history of the – which I was already into, but he just loved all that stuff. Like he was real big on that stuff. And he took me motor pacing every Tuesday. We'd go meet on Beach Road, bang it down to Arthur's seat, do some efforts there over the top, down the back, do Boneyard Road and come around home. And we went every Tuesday, rain, hail or shine, and he'd just be on the motorbike shivering and freezing and just – pretty much loving it being out there and remembering because he didn't ride anymore and funnily enough he, he came about as my coach because of uh, Baden Cook who's a famous Australian and he I was on mates with him um, good mates with him and he told me because I'm a natural sprinter he kind of he didn't get up me but he just said look if you want to be good you have to you can't just depend on your natural ability you have to get like a you have to be a hard man you have to be you need a coach who had a work ethic but wasn't a natural and so mm. he told Ragsy Paul Rigari that he should coach me and he told me that I should be getting coached by him and Ragsy wasn't into the bikes at all. Like he didn't even watch bikes on TV because he sort of like me with footy. Like if you're, if you're watching it, you want to be out there. Mm. And so it was a pretty, it was a tricky thing, but then he, he ended up coaching me. He just he gave me a couple of things. He said, Oh, you have to go and do like five hours a day after a race if you don't win or something. And so I went and did six and I told him and he's like, Oh, I'll coach you. So <laughs> they, were the, they were the kind of things he wanted to know. So, we had all these things like yeah. if I won a race, the next day I had to do only five hours, and if I lost, I had to do six. You know, things like that. Like yeah, proper uh, yeah, try and make me hard and tough and yeah, through, testing your will. Yeah, and through that, um, yeah, and if you ever pulled out of a race, like similar things, and you know, like all these kind of that's another thing we like on half wheel and Tommy. We like genuine hard bastards, so that's another reason yeah. why we got you on Especially yeah, since I don't know, my I, days of that are long gone. <laughs> oh yeah, well we like hard bastards because I don't, I can't speak for Ross, but I'm nowhere near that, so that's why we like that. But um, 
Tommy, you know that that training ride. I just heard. You know, when you do motor pacing with that coach, and you go down. You know, um, that's in a part of Melbourne, like the outskirts of Melbourne, for our international li- listeners. So you've got a country of Australia, state of Victoria down the south, and then a part of Melbourne. But that ride probably about 170, 180 k's. The motor pacing uh, and something like that. Yeah, I'd chuck on a bit extra and make it about 200 each time. So, so 200 k's. So what's that? 120, 130 miles. And motor pacing. When you're motor pacing, um, sitting on what speed most of the time? Oh, we just kept getting faster and faster. But yeah, probably 50. 50, right? So there yeah, you go. Miles there. Yeah, so there you go, the listeners. Sitting on for like 180 or probably 170 k's of that 200 sitting on 31 miles, 50 k's an hour, and then you're doing some climbing efforts in the middle of it too. Yeah, so that's, a couple of sprints, and the fastest sprint we got up to was 78 k an hour. Wow. There you go. There you go. So, now. Ross, Ross, the benchmark for us has just lifted a bit more, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure we'll ever sort of get close to that, but um, – it is the benchmark. We're all just going to fall uh, drastically short of it, Scotty, at the end of the day. Just got to reduce our scope a bit. Yeah. It's a tricky one, though, because like that, and funnily enough, Ragsy said the same to me because his dad used to take him when he was young, but mm. he said when he was young and his dad took him posting all the time and he was taking me and he's like, you'll never, he goes, it's the best form I ever had. And I know the same thing. Like, I will never, ever have form like that ever again in my life because. Mm. All that time spinning on the, behind the motorbike and just the speeds that you ride at and how much you just flow over anything hard, like you just you never you can't match it, like no matter what you do. And mm. so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny one because it's, it's it's impossible for most people. Firstly, you need yeah. a second person who's going to do yeah. just as much time as you to training and stuff. But so, what's the difference? Well, what's the difference between that, Tommy, from a training point? Because Listeners, the other thing I didn't say is that Tommy not only is a great cyclist himself and racing and performer, but he also uh, does coaching work and he's helping me a little bit as well. So, Tommy, what's the difference from a training effect of that where you're sitting at 50Ks an hour but you're sitting behind a wheel? So you're having to work but you're working up at that almost like that Ferrari high revving level as opposed to sort of riding and pushing your own wind and, you know, what do they give you? Because I'm sure you need to do a bit of both at times. Well, it'll probably be that that thing I told you about, that, that pedal efficiency and that pedal momentum, right. you just, you're humming over the top of the pedals at you know, whatever, yeah. 60, oh, I don't know, 50 k's an hour or whatever, and you're just doing these little squirts of effort mm-hmm. to keep on top of the, the high speed. Whereas if you're riding on your own, like at 30-odd k's an hour, like then you get chucked in a race and those little squirts of effort are a lot different to riding on your own. Like yeah. all these young guys, they go training up and down the hills and they just do – Hill repeats, and so their best effort is done at slow twenty-seven k an hour, which is great on those hills. But what's well, great like for the nationals, like the, the nationals at Bunyan are on, like the the race is basically won at eighteen k's an hour. Mm. I'm sure not going to win a race at eighteen k's an hour. So mm. if anything that has to go into the small chain ring, I'm gone. So yeah, because one of the points you make is that for most riders at most levels of racing, and then almost all the way up to world tour level most races that might have climbing in them but most races are one finishing with some sort of sprint on and flatter sections is that sort of yeah is that that's i've sort of summarized that correctly haven't i yeah yeah, absolutely yeah yeah so the importance of being able to have power and speed on flatter flatter or even rolling hill courses but holding high speed not only being good at high power at lower speeds such as a long climb yeah yeah well and yeah races are usually one at high speed and most 
races average speed about, you know, between like, I don't know, 43 and 48k an hour or something. So, mm. uh, yeah, that's why that, our nationals, different topic. We can do another podcast on that, but mm. it's, uh, it's just a it's, a, it's a very, very weird race. Like, it's like, I could almost host it on an ergo, to be honest. But. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, when you initiated that road career, how did you go about finding a team? Was that something that just you were identified? Oh, yeah, I was, I, was, I, was, I was kind of getting to that. So, yeah. No, no, I was, get, I was getting to that. Rags and I, like, put a couple of words together, and Cookie, who was at the time the current green jersey winner from the Tour de France, he emailed every team in the US with my resume oh, and a few man. things about me and, and, and hit them up and asked if any of them would be interested in having me. And uh, and that's how it started over there. Any emailed teams in the US, did you say? Yeah, because that's where he made his uh, inroads into racing as a pro. He thought that was your your best next step to go yeah. to, to US teams, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, right. Just getting back to your start off with the team, how did you find that, you know, working with an overseas team, everything that goes with it, the, you know, the travelling, the races, the just the lifestyle? How did that suit you as an up-and-coming rider? Uh, it's, it's a kind of – it's a funny one because, like, I just and, – and I wouldn't be the first person this has happened to and I've helped out some young teammates and stuff in the past as well. But the, the – so when you're in Australia, you can race nearly every week and when – we had road races on. We could go and do the hell ride in the morning and then go and do a road race. And then Sunday you do this and then Monday you do this and Tuesday everyone does this and then goes to Sandown and Wednesday you do this and Thursday you do – there was always something on. And so you just get into this thing and, like, that's the Australian way. Rags and I probably misjudged that one and obviously him on the other side of the world, it wasn't so easy to keep coaching me and, we didn't, you know, we didn't know the race schedule and things change. And, like, on the whole, living out of a suitcase, I actually – I live with a teammate at this sponsor's house and he unpacked the day we got there and went into the chest of drawers. You know, he put all his clothes in the drawers and I lived out of my suitcase the whole year. I was just ready to pick up my bag and go to the yeah. next place. Like if they, if I got a text message, I was ready in two minutes. But yeah. that never happens. But I was, mm. I got a bit just shipped off to wherever the, the very Mentally, next that's where you were. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like one thing I learned, it took me probably maybe say three years or something, but learned to America was or the racing over there really depends on training hard and training between and for each race and i wanted to be just a racer so when i went to belgium it suited me way 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 better because the racing yeah. was super hard and it was pretty much just recovery rides in between and yeah i was getting you know you'd get to the finish in most races and you get formed from finishing races not getting dropped in them and that really uh sort of i definitely went backwards that first year because I was probably too caught up in expecting racing to bring me up to form and you just didn't do enough racing and didn't do enough hard racing and didn't do enough in between the gaps between racing and probably a big part of me probably thought that I'd made it when I first went there even though I hadn't mm. and here I thought I was living the dream and you see you see that now you see these guys they get on teams and they think they've made it and they haven't because you have to just keep getting results and you have to keep doing well and I got my best results in the start of that year and I had I had some really good results against some really good riders and but then it started to drop off as the year rolled on because there just wasn't the racing that was keeping me topped up or bringing me up to a new higher level than I'd been at before and I didn't have a power meter and power meters were new on the scene and guys were getting into them and I just thought oh yeah it's easy I'll just go and do my long hard five-hour ride and my long this and my long that and they never happened 
Yeah. I didn't even learn the roads. I just had like these loops that I'd do with who, with my teammate and it was just, I wasn't, there was no, I don't, even looking back, I don't think there was any arrogance about it. I just didn't know what to do and I wasn't mature enough and I didn't know how to do the hard work. I wasn't scared of the hard work, but I just was probably thinking, you know, race was like, oh, there's not much more I can do now. You've just got to do the racing and, you know, ride between races. And in Europe, that's fine where he was a pro. <laughs> but in the US, it's not so much like that. So it was a, uh, I can't even say a learning experience because I didn't really learn from it until a couple oh, of years right. later, you know. So I'd still put in all the hard work and, and stuff, especially in the summer when I came home. But that's when I was in my comfort zone and I knew that I did this loop on this day and this loop on this day and the whole ride Saturday and extras afterwards and race on the Sunday and do, yeah. you know what I mean? So, I was doing all that stuff and that worked, but then I'd get away and then I was like, oh, yeah, the racing's got to give me some form. I've got to do tours to get form for the one-day races and then, the, you know, it's just whatever. How old were you at that point? I'm 23. Yeah. So, But I, I started road really late. I finished uni and did pretty much my first road season the year after I finished uni, so I was pretty young and that's what – it's actually also what does my hitting when the media and everyone's critical of footballers and Nick Kyrgios and all these people because they're – they're sports stars, but they're so young. Like they're yeah. just, they're, they they they're straight. They're, some of them are even still at school, yeah. and you know everyone's abusing Kyrgios State, and he doesn't even have a footy team around him. Like, yeah. and a and a coach and a development coach and a weights coach and all these other people mm. who can take him under their wing. He's just kind of flying by the seat of his pants, I suppose, is that, if that's the right way to put it. And he's yeah. kind of just he's not fluffing along, but he's just like you know he's learning as he goes, and he's learning the hard way because he's copying the wrath of the Australian media yeah. and I reckon it's pretty unfair because he really like I remember at the time my, I have a I'm my, the oldest of four but my youngest is 10 years younger than me and I'm like the stuff that he does when he's uh <laughs> when he was 22 and 23 and I'm thinking yeah the stuff I did when I was 21 and 22 and like you know imagine having the whole country come down on you and mm-hmm. it's not really uh yeah it's just yeah it's hard like the footy stars come out of the draft and <laughs> they're not they're not ready for that national abuse, but yeah. So what was that? when you when you went then from the US to racing in Europe and and Belgium, you know, from that learning perspective, did, did you take anything with you? Did, looking back at that now, were, were you different in that transition going from that place to to Belgium and Europe? Um, well, it's funny because I actually I still like I did I did all that even as I said I always did all the hard training, but at the end of two thousand and eight the the team I was on shafted me pretty hard. Like I was trying to change teams and this cockhead manager, he did a fake uh, contract with a fake signature and he did a thing on cycling news saying I signed a contract with him, which wasn't true. Like I hadn't. Yeah. And so I'm applying to other teams and they're like, oh, you've already signed with yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I haven't. And so he, he anyways, dogged me on that. And so I had no, I told him to get fucked and I had no team at the end of 2008. And, you know, I swear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and so I uh, I did the, the Oceanas were in Port Arlington on the old Nationals course and I look at these Nationals course today I'm like they should be Port Arlington but the I won the Oceanas there and, and I was at, like the break it was pretty it was one of my better wins actually because it was every team had like two guys representing the break and I was there on my own and I, and I won and uh, which if you did that now you'd probably be set for a good team and it did nothing for me but uh, <laughs> I ended up going on to like a pretty lower end like Belgian team but I well yeah it was a low end Belgian team but we had real good race program and the the best part about it was I had a 
one of the fam- more famous bike riders of the last few decades, Frank Vanderbrook, was one of our teammates. It was kind of this weird way that the team came together and, and it ended up him and Baden Cook were really tight. They'd been teammates on Unibet and Baden contacted him and said, you know, my mate, good mate Tommy's going to be on the team. And then so Frank just, he just looked after me like nothing else. Like he was always looking out for me, helping me in races, doing like dragging me up to the right moves and doing this and doing that. And What was the thing that you learned from him? What, what was it? What did you learn from being that close to that type of rider, that quality rider? Uh, well, he's. Do you know anything about him? Not a lot. No, not that name. No, Ross. Okay, do you? So, so no, not a heap. No. Oh, you got to look it up. Like it's a, it's a tragic story, actually. Um, he, like he was the darling of Belgian cycling. Like he was the, he won Roubaix when he was. He won so many races and he podiumed so many races, but he won Liège when he was twenty three or something. Fuck. And he was just a national hero. But what happened in that? Uh, Remember when all that uh, Festina stuff and all that was going down? Yeah, his 98. doctor, or whatever you want to call it, his coach kind of doctor, got caught crossing the French-Belgian border the back way and he had all this gear in his car. And they said, what's the gear for? And he says, Frank Vandenbroek. Oh, fuck. And so then all the, yeah, the whole world broke down around him. But he was, uh, and the shit thing about that is, and, People probably crucify me for this, but everyone was doing the same everyone stuff. Doing it. So yeah. that's, doesn't, that's the way to I me, it. it doesn't matter at all. Like yeah. it's like something that you see on TV now. Sorry, something that you see on TV from ten years ago is upsetting people yeah. now. So yeah. people can slam him all they want, but he was he had the charisma. He had the so he was only twenty three or whatever it is, and you got to watch this Liège that he won the night before in a press conference. He said where he was going to attack, and he said what he was going to do and how he was going to win, and. He turned around the next day and he did exactly what he said. They couldn't stop him. So, they, they, yeah, there's nothing they could do and he just, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, but he, he was just like, he was, he, he had a, I don't know, there's a, there's a good word and I'm not thinking of the word, but he had a, um, I don't want to say drama followed him, but he, he had like, you know, he had mm. clashes with managers and he had this and he had that, but he was still just, just you know, winning everywhere he went. But then everything yeah, so he ended up like he, he he was. I guess in the end, he was kind of polarizing, and people hated him or people loved him. But he he had this bad period in his life. So what happened in um at the end of he said he was going to win the world. So like he was, he won the World Cup. So back when they had the World Cup jersey, I don't know if you remember it. It was the vertical rainbow stripes. Mm-hmm. It was a white jersey, and it had the vertical stripes up the side of the jersey. And um he was going to win the worlds that year, and he said he was going to win the worlds, and he said how he was going to do it, and it was on the course that suited him down to the ground. And in the first 20 Ks or something, he crashed and he broke both arms and he still made the front group and he still did his attack where he said he was going to do his attack. But he couldn't get out the seat and use his normal power. Usually when, when he used to get out yeah. the seat, he'd just go out the seat like he was just charging to a finish line. But he had to do it in the seat because he couldn't, with his broken arms, yeah. he couldn't get out of his seat. And Weak basically bastard. he just let him out. It was on the um, Amstel Gold course at the top of that yeah. hill. And he the basically did a lead out yeah. for uh, Oscar Freire one. But he still top 10 but then, yeah, like he went through his depression and all that stuff and he, he tried to kill himself a couple of times and he went on some, you know, he did. It's a, it's a pretty sad, it's a really sad story actually. But if you if you look it up, he was, um, you can do research on that because he's like a, he's one of the last charismatic enigmas of cycling mm-hmm. in a way. He was like as big or bigger than Sagan. He mm-hmm. was uh, firstly just sitting at a table with him. He's just like, you get like a bit, oh, fuck. And then he's like, oh, I'm his favourite guy all of a sudden because yeah. Him and Cookie love each other, and Cookie called him and said, "I've got a mate coming to your team." 
yeah. look after him. And then so, yeah, he was always like, you know, if he had one bottle left or something and, you know, it was getting towards the end of the race, he didn't care. He'd go thirsty and give me his bit on and, you know, like he used to hate it if I had my vest on in the last 50Ks. Like he's like, if you've got your vest on tomorrow and the finish, I'm going to crash you and, you know, all these kind of things. And you have to, you know, if you finished with bit-ons on your bike, that was extra weight and, you know, all these kind of quirky things. Mm, mm. So, Sounds like a yeah. great teammate to have. Yeah, and he's like, oh, don't ride in, you know, we'd come in, there's, it's five Ks before a hill. He goes, do not ride on the left-hand side of the road here. People are going to crash. Oh, that is and so gold right. intel. And then there's a crack in the concrete. Bang, 10 that guys go down. just <laughs> gold <laughs> intel. And he said, you know, he'd have all these things and you'd have like, you know, they're just little bits and pieces of every bit of road. And he's like, so you're cruising around and he's all that stuff. So that's why, Tommy, um, I was so, um, I was unsure about Alaphilippe in Flanders this year because he'd never ridden it before. And I was, you know, the power, but I was surprised that, you know, because of the, you know, the rights and lefts and all the, the road squeeze, all the, just the technicalities of that course. How do you, yeah, just to jump out of what you're saying, how do you view that? How, is it just because physically he's so much so talented that he could sort of avoid all those pitfalls by being at the front, or what? Alaphilippe. How do you read that? Yeah. So oh, no, yeah, he's, based he's on what you're totally class rider. Like he, he's probably in a strange way he's got similar attributes to VDB. Like they're pretty explosive for small guy, and they got the yeah the power of a bigger guy, even though they're smaller. And they mm. yeah, they just ride in good position. And oh, a lot of people hate Alaphilippe. I love him because he's just we love he's him. got the he's got that flamboyance and the charisma yeah. that goes with him and pe- people people don't like that but i love it and he's he's explosive yeah. and he and he takes the race on and he'd rather go down yeah. swinging than leave yeah. it, uh, you know hold back and not find out yeah we he's known here at the half wheel and ross named him the drama queen and we, we stand by that but he's he, yeah we want him in the race yeah, yeah, exactly. we want him in the race oh how good would the race have been if the three of them were going to the finish oh my Absolutely. god who knows what would have happened oh and that's what we have Nowhere near enough of in cycling at the moment. Mm. Like if there were ten of him and ten of Sagan's and stuff and ruffling feathers, and it doesn't mm. matter whether they whether you like them or not, as long as they're polarizing, you know. Like it, mm. it's like <laughs> they're gonna make you. On a, yeah, we just it, Lance was the same. Like people hated him or loved him. Like, mm. yeah. But that yeah. that get that gets people watching the races and and gets them gets them into cycling and yeah. Also aggressive racing. There's nothing better than aggressive racing, and that's what we. Since the sports cleaned up, we've kind of missed out on watching all these dudes at fifty plus in Matacrit just launching it nonstop up the hills, and, you know, <laughs> attacking in their drops in fifty k an hour up mountains and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. although, although Tommy last season twenty twenty, that was aggressive racing, wasn't it? The whole year was just bang, 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 bang. We were lucky there. Yeah, in the condensed season, I don't know if that's a if that's the that's done cycling a favour or what it is. But, yeah, that was the best racing season we've had in, in years and oh, years. So so many fascinating give, races. Give us more of that. You know, and you mentioned uh, power metres before, um, and we've seen it a lot um, recently. Probably we saw evidence in the last season of it, riders racing on field. How do you view it? Is there too much in, particularly in the world tour, too much focus on on that power and really riding to the numbers as opposed to, you know, what we profess here at Half Wheel and is, is just light it up and just race by feel and have a crack? Yeah, 100%. Get rid of them. Yeah, get rid of them all. Get, don't let them race with power meters, even heart rate monitors. It just ruins the – it just ruins it. It's just – even the, the riders are selected now on their power ability and their power and their weight rather than race results. The results obviously help them, but mm. the guys will be sending their power into teams. The teams should say – 
come back with five race results. Mm. But they're and I, I, you know, I say that that's a broad, uh, fleeting statement. But the teams should be filled with race results. All the guys get there. It's like every AFL team's got, you know, twenty-two Ruck Rovers out on the field, yeah. and then, you know, they all learn how to play a position once they get a bit older. But they all they were all on board when they started as kids, and that's where they, yeah, you know, that's where they, um, that's why they were the best player in their team, and make the cycling teams that just a bunch of dars. And then let them worry about you know have your power meters for training. This is this is only my view, and I'm probably massively wrong now. I'm a dinosaur now, even though I'm I'm not. But I don't reckon they should be allowed to race with power meters. Mm. Leave them, they'll know what yeah. the power is anyway. But it'd be better if no one were looking at that stuff when they're going. Even yeah. just popping off in a bunch on the doesn't sound the hell right. And people are looking at the power they're doing when they're swapping through. But you're meant to do it on the speed. Like keep the speed the same. So you roll through for your turn. If the bunch is doing fifty, you have to do fifty. If that costs you 700 watts because you misjudged rolling off the wheel, or if that costs you 200 watts because you rolled off the wheel perfectly, you have to hold the same speed, whether it's a yeah. one-second turn or a 21-second turn. And I see guys looking at their power meters, and I'm like, you have got absolutely no idea what you're doing, and you'll never understand. <laughs> That's not how yeah, you guys ride, is it, with your power meters? No, <laughs> Ross, Ross doesn't have one, and I, I've got so much power, I blow it up. So uh, <laughs> it's just the way it goes. I can't help it. But – um. Ross, like this, what we're hearing Tommy talk about now is almost like that Moneyball concept where, you know, people get caught up in the, the measurement, you know, say when Moneyball, which is Major League Baseball, they get caught up in the stats and how our swing looks or whatever else. But then the Billy Bean character of Moneyball saying, yeah, but can they play? Can they hit? Can they drive in runs? And what Tommy's saying is, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the, the measurements, but are you actually affecting winning results, you know, either for yourself or your team? Yeah. And that um, and that, that's that's one of the reasons why Tommy gels with me in um, general as a general almost like philosophy of talking about performance, but also why I got him to help me because I felt like he could help me sort of uh, short track or cut cut a lot of the crap out, which is good crap. It's all good to have that all that stuff, but it's like, hang on a minute, is there is there a more direct way? Is there a way that I can avoid the bullshit and focus on the on the stuff that's really going to matter? Yeah, less robots and bring the heart back into it. Um, mm. That's it might be a minor percentage for some, but geez, that minor percentage could be the difference between winning and losing. You don't need a rev limiter. What do you want a rev limiter for on game day? Yeah. Yeah. So, Tommy, on that, for some of our listeners, that'd probably be interested in like training mistakes, you know, common training mistakes that you see, tr- common racing mistakes, you know, from a performance point of view. What comes to mind for you? Training mistakes? Hmm. I don't do enough of training anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Training mistakes. Well, I mentioned one before, doing all your yeah. efforts on a hill. So doing basically all your on training, training slow, even though the effort's high. Yeah, you need to – there's times when you just have to do things at race pace. Like It's a lot easier to do power on a hill. I know that sounds silly, but mm. 400 watts uphill, sitting on the top of your bars, sitting upright, you know, 30K an hour versus yeah. 400 watts tucked into your more aero position trying to be fast at mm. 105 cadence at 50K an hour is that are two massively different skill sets. Mm. Most people probably don't sprint often enough. I don't either, but as my grandpa always says, every race is one with a sprint. Yeah, and at some point. When yeah. we were kids, we used to always sprint for every crossing and you'd sprint for every town sign and you'd sprint all the time. And then when you, you guys got into the sport a bit older, but when we were young, that's what like, mm. everything was like a bit of a mini race when there was no speedos and no power meters and all that stuff. It was like, oh, 60 sign sprint. Oh, town mm. sign sprint. Oh, crossing, you know, sprint. 
you'd be doing 30 sprints every time you went training and naturally everyone was good at sprinting. Uh, what's another thing? There's so many skills you can learn on the bike, like riding close to the wheels or, you know, getting out of your seat without throwing your bike back or taking a corner without needing to put your brakes on or doing things like that. You know, feeling the momentum of the bike, feeling the flow of the bike, learning to ride with no hands, learning to be able to take your leg and knee and arm warmers off while you're riding. Uh, you can even just do that on a basketball court. Take your shoe off, put it back on. Take your sunglasses off, take your helmet off, put them back on. Mm. Simple things like that. Take stuff out of your pocket while you're riding. Had a snot mm. off the bike without getting everyone. You do it under I your arm. Scotty, that, that was one. that directed at you, Scott, that, that yeah. last one? No, I actually no, I heard that last time, but if you yeah. do it under your arm while yeah. you're riding, you just do it under yeah. your arm, you can't yeah. get anyone. Yeah, but the risk is you might get yourself. So I guess that's... Who, who, who gets home from training and doesn't have a shower? Who gets home uh, from training and doesn't wash their cycling kit? That's no a one. good point. Well, I hope no one. Is, <laughs> see, this is why I'm paying in the big bucks. Sometimes I just, yeah. in a race, I just do it straight down, bang, straight on me. Because oh, after a race, cool. I wash, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, that's going to, that's going to make bike. me feel good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I like that. And it probably looks cooler for a photo if you've got snot and stuff all over you as well. Well, actually, snot. that's that's a good point because in the cyclocross world's way up and up for the last six laps, had this massive booger coming out of his nose. I don't know if you noticed yeah, that. It was, yeah, I and mean, if it's good enough for wow, it's good enough for everyone. Yeah, exactly. What, other, what was the other thing? Racing? Did you say training? Yeah, mistakes? racing. The... Yeah, yeah, tr- yeah. like common mistakes or common opportunities in training. And and now let's jump to racing because you, you, you see things beyond just the physical fitness part of it. So racing, the number one, what, what's the day, what's, what happens when you enter a race, what are you trying to do? Well, yeah, you only race to see if you can possibly win. Yeah, well. That's a bit, or more than that. That's, that's soft, isn't bland. it? That was a bit soft. Yeah. To win, you to fucking to win. win, Tom. Is that pleasing? Well, you just that's everyone starts a race to win. Like cross the yeah, line first. It's, yeah, yeah, that's the point of it. Yeah. So give yourself every chance to win. But these yeah. guys rock up. I don't know what they're thinking, but what's your number one attribute that might allow you to win? You have to try and act that out in the race. So if you can sprint, you have to be able to see the sprint finish. If you're a 20 minute breakaway, you have to be in the group that you can do your 20 minute breakaway from. If you're a climber, you have to be in the front group when you get to the climb. If you've got no chance of a sprint, uh, winning in a sprint, you cannot wait for a sprint. And then you can rewind a little bit. And if you're on a team, it doesn't, in a local race especially, you still need to learn how to win. And if you're in the race near the finish, you have to try and win. And people don't even think about winning. I don't even know what they think about, to be honest. But like, oh, I've got a teammate in the break. I'm like, cool, dude, have another recovery day. Like, Another race goes, there's only a handful in a season. There's only a fewer handful that you actually even get the chance to try and go for a win. If you don't take every chance to try and win, what's going to happen when you get to the biggest stage and you've got to try and win, but you've never tried to win before? And then mm. you get to the biggest stage again and you try and win and you've never tried to win before. So even on a hell ride or a local bunch ride and there's a town sign or a 60 sign or a crossing that you sprint for, if you don't know how to get there in a small setting, how can you do it in the big setting? Yeah, You don't know what the wheels do. You don't know... You know, the wheels are in like the other bike riders in front of you. If you take, give someone five lengths and take a run at them or whether you have to start early and use your biggest gear or do you have to, who knows what, everyone has to find out their own thing. But if you don't, if you're just going to leave it up to a teammate to get the result or if you're going to leave it up to, I don't know, chance or no chance to get a result, then the chances of getting a result are pretty slim. Mm. And so people, even going to say a team, the odds of a team winning a race aren't with one guy in a 10-man breakaway. The odds of winning are with stacking that breakaway with your riders. But then if you stack that breakaway with your riders, you have to make the breakaway stick because then you've yeah. got the bigger odds of winning. Yeah. So there's so many things like that. And it's, it's all about 
winning's basically about odds. Whether you make your own odds or your team odds or whatever, the more you can stack things in your favour, the more chance you've got of winning. So for me, just for argument's sake, like I'm, I'm, I'm a fast sprinter, but I can also ride in a small group breakaway and then I don't have as big a bunch to race against in the finish. So that suits me more. Mm-hmm. Being a smaller group, because then I might have to keep an eye on five guys, and I, I hope I can beat them. I probably I wouldn't anymore because they'd ride away from me. But if I'm there with that chance to act out my sprint, that's a good chance for me to win. But if I'm in the second group on the road, and I'm like, oh, I've got my teammate up the road, he can have a chance. You know, one in twenty, that's perfect. It's not perfect because if he's not the fastest sprinter in the twenty, firstly he's got a lesser chance of winning, and then if he gets dropped or has a flat or something happens, and he can't. But like, he, he wants some help up there. He doesn't want to be up there on his own. But yeah, that's uh. Mm, that's good. Just a bit of a a, a quick, real yeah. 10-second overview of making odds in your favour to try and win. Yeah, and you said, um, you know, essentially your biggest strength is your sprint. And um, I've asked you about your numbers over time, and um, you've had a peak at one point at like 1780 in a sprint. So that's that's more than – it was. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Good. Eight, sorry, apologies. No, seriously, mate. So 1845 is Tommy's best ever peak power. Um, so that, that was in that's, a race for a so race win too. It wasn't in training for a – That wasn't in training post. when you're fresh. So no. that's, that's just so the people – Sprinting for a win. There you go. So just so people know, that's 200 more, 200 more watts than Caleb Ewan put out um, in that Tour de France stage this year. Now, we're not – comparing abilities it's or anything four, like that. 400 more than I can do now. <laughs> that's right. So he can do and so, right, he can hit 1,400 regularly high now. But also, interestingly, this is where Tommy has a bit of an understanding of what's required in a race. He recognises that he also he's also won sprints at 1,100 watts and 1,000 watts sprints because of, you know, the fatigue going into it and the, the nature of a real road race or, or crit race. So so he's he's got these peak levels, but then understands that can, sprints could be one off off much less than that. So Tommy, that's what people would say on the outside. The casual observer would see you and go, "Oh, Tommy's got a, a great sprint. He's a strong rider." What's what would you see without giving the game away? And I don't want you to feel like you've got to give the game away. But is there one thing that you feel like you do internally that people couldn't see? Is there one thing that you reckon makes a difference? Or is it that decision that no matter what, you're going to try and find a way to get to the sprint so you can win? It probably doesn't give anything away, really. It's knowing, it's being able to gauge what I can do. So if I'm feeling bad and I've got a 100-meter sprint in me, I have to wait for 100 meters. If I'm feeling good and I've got a 250-meter sprint in me, I can do a 250-meter sprint. But it's knowing what you can spit out at the moment you need it. And you'll make that assessment whether when you're in the bunch and it's getting hot or when you're in that small group breakaway, you'll be assessing that constantly through a race? Uh, I think, no, well, that's probably the, the thing that you can't train. It's just if I need to call on it, I know exactly oh, what I've right. got. Yeah. Um, there's guys that just attack through the finish line. I think they just attack because they want to attack while the commentators are there mm. and get their name called out. <laughs> I don't know if it's the right place to attack or not, but you're setting yourself up for a you know, six-and-a-half, seven-minute effort with an acceleration at the start to get away from the bunch. I don't know if that's their best chances of getting to the move or if they're better to wait for two minutes before the crest of the hill to then try and spin the downhill and then do a seven-minute climb, two litres. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know what everyone's got, but I also don't know if they're thinking of that stuff. Mm. But for me, like, I, yeah, I don't do what I used to do in terms of the training and the hard work, but if I were in a race, I used to know, all right, they've got the length of the finish straight that's going to take. I don't know how long it's going to take me, but I know whether I can get there or not. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, if they go up the back straight, it's stand down and I'm like... I've got maybe a 50-meter window now that I have to close it, but it used to maybe be 300, yep. that kind of thing. But I know that if I go this hard, I don't know how hard, but 
I know how hard I have to accelerate out of the bunch or if the bunch gets up to X speed, I know that that's enough to launch me and take my acceleration for me that I can then just use a maximum effort to get to the brake, yeah. those kind of things. But I, yeah. that's probably years and years of training and you can't probably teach it really. So mm. it's a tricky one to... <laughs> yeah, a lot of experience. There's, you know, there's probably guys that race Pro Tour that don't even know, I, just, I guess, maybe. I could be wrong. Mm. they know that they if they're trying to weigh up numbers they'll go oh that's a 16 minute climb and i can do it at you know 410 watts or whatever mm. that might be one thing but yeah it's um something that because i spent so much time racing on the track and you're stuck in one gear you had to know what you're capable of when you did your acceleration and when you did your you, you you were very limited in what you could close down and what you could let go and what you could yeah how much you could gauge your effort because you had to increase your cadence to close a gap or whatever so those kind of things maybe had, had a lot to do with what i've learned yeah, you're oh, constantly having to assess on the track. Yeah. So I'm sure all the track riders, they know. But yeah, like mm. you can, in, I mean, there's times when you get it wrong. <laughs> they nail it often, but like, yeah, to blow my own trumpet, I'll probably get that right a lot more than other people do. It's obviously at a much lower level, but mm. fortunately for me, the, well, unfortunately for me, if I were five or 10% stronger, I probably would have been doing that stuff at the pro tour level, but because I can find a finish line. And if I was blessed with a bit more, uh, oh, threshold or five minute power or whatever it was that i needed mm. just a bit more a bigger tank or five kilos less body weight with the same power it might have made all the difference um mm. but when i get thrown in a race winning situation i usually can find a finish line no matter who i'm mm. against so that's um i've been lucky with that but I, I, I honestly i don't know if i can tell you how what it is that makes it happen i think it's just my dad and grandpa just drumming stuff into me and getting up me if i did stuff wrong and just thinking everything through for the race wins i remember so there's this schoolboys thing years ago, years and years ago. The first uh, state title I won, actually, it was at Sandown and it was a standing start sprint and you started at, I don't know, it was like 250 metre sprint, but it was a straight line standing start sprint and all the heats went and then the finals and you, you know, there's eight people or 10 people in the final, but you had a standing start across the across the Sandown raceway and, you know, there's the organisers probably, they obviously didn't appreciate that it's a state title for whoever wins, like it was pretty basic, but... And you're in the biggest there. gear? You start in the biggest gear or you start oh, in a... the thing. Well, oh, okay, right. Yeah, okay. You work out, don't you? Yes, so yes. I remember, well, I actually broke my bike one time doing the... My dad and grandpa wanted me to change gears and I didn't want to change gears. And they're like, you have to change gears. I'm like, I don't have to change gears. And they made me use this gear at the start and then they'll fucking rip some of the teeth out of the cog and fucking <laughs> I've got second instead of first. Too much power. I was like, I told you I shouldn't <laughs> have to change gears. Um, <laughs> but we'd get there early and they... Dad go down on the course and we had to work out where the flattest part of that 250 metres was and where the wind's coming from and what's going to be the best lane. And Dad was going to line up 10 minutes early and I was going to come to him because if that's the flattest part of the sprint, that's where I have to be for the standing start. And maybe the guy three lanes along has got like a 30 centimetre incline, but it's an incline and I was already on the flat or I had a 10 centimetre incline. So all these things, like you have to – this is this is, this is is when I'm like <laughs> – I was only one year into cycling. I was probably 14 or something. <laughs> but these are the things, you know, why? Yeah. You know, like you had to, you don't Problem just go solving. and go as hard as you can. You got to go, what's yeah. my best chances of winning? So like that stuff just. Constant problem solving. That's what I'm hearing, Tommy. And, and, and learning to incorporate lots of elements into getting the result. And doing it at 180 beats per minute. And yeah. Thinking <laughs> stuff for you. So that's, that, that, and that's the name of the game in cycling. Like if you can do stuff when you're pegged and absolutely fried, and you can still think what's the way to make things the easiest for yourself or best chance of winning. That's the key pretty much. So yeah. gets back a little bit to what we spoke about, not producing robots, produce guys who can think for themselves and decide what to do under pressure, under fatigue. Yeah, it's going to be the winning move potentially. Stuff like it's a sport. It's not just sport built for cameras. Like it's a sport built for getting to a finish line on your knees. 
Tommy, one last thing is that here at Half Wheeling, we like heroes. We like we love Belgian riders, therefore, and that's that's pretty much the only reason we got you on because you you raced in Belgium. And one of the Belgian riders is Greg Van Avermaet, who obviously he was the he's won Paris Bay and a whole lot of races, bit of a gun at the World Tour level. He also the gold medalist at Rio. After he uh, won that gold medal, you know, obviously there's a you know, hey, I'm the gold medalist, so let's make things look gold. So he's got the gold plated helmet, he's got the gold dip bike, and that was pretty sweet for a while. We all thought, you know, he's still enough. clinging on. He's clinging on to it though, isn't he? He's clinging on to it, Tommy. He's clinging on to it. That's right. And really, he was done up last year by the Italian rider for Team Ineos, Filippo Garnar, who's got the whole gold bike, not just who, a dip gold bike. Who we dubbed a gold member. Gold member because we reckon his tackle was gold as well. Some sort of aerodynamic. <laughs> benefits he thought but anyway so he's he's sort of being done up and yet now it's the fifth year of the olympic cycle because they couldn't have the olympics last year with the pandemic so he's stuck he's with the gold gonna, he's probably gunning for a sixth year isn't he? he's probably in the back that's right. the olympics to get cancelled so probably, you know it's like probably going using a crop duster and spreading COVID over there uh, Japan. <laughs> <laughs> get that fifth year so he's yeah. changed teams he's changed bikes and he's still going with the gold thing like you look we love your gba we appreciate the gold thing. Good on you. It's an achievement. But perhaps it's time to give it a spell. And um, didn't you do the race that was named his honour or the race of his hometown? Well, you're putting a bit of mayo on it, but, yeah. That's what we're about here, Tommy. Put as much mayo Lots of mayo. Stacked no, I'm not going to have a pot shot of at a gun. <laughs> not going to have a pot shot at a gun. He, must have, he, he might have forgotten to go, I don't know, he might have been drunk the night before or something. So what do you? So, well, what, no, but hang on a minute. What happened in this race? Oh, it's just it was just a pro commise, but in his hometown, Zela, in uh, Belgium, it's near Antwerp. So you, well, that's what I understand. But you crossed the line first ahead of him in a in a three man break. Was that right? No, I was about eight of us. Uh, he came fourth. He might have put his brakes on so he didn't have to stand on the podium next to a flog. <laughs> Pretty sure that's probably what happened. Well, I, that's not the story I heard. I heard that his whole family was there, and he's. His sisters and his cousins and nieces, um, they were crying because it was this guy who beat their Greg Van Avermaet over the line at their home race. Might have the flu or the early stages of COVID. <laughs> yeah. Scotty, when you said... I'm really helping you was, half wheeling thing, Scotty, when yeah. you said Tommy was humble, like, I didn't think he'd be this humble. Like, this is, a, I know, this is like, the best opportunity. We've worked for 120 <laughs> minutes for this, Ross, and he still won't <laughs> cut loose. Mate, no you, wonder he can fuck gets results because he saves it up and puts it into the pedals and not into the words. <laughs> I'll tell you the coolest thing about the race, right? So Yeah. What year was this, Tom? I know. Yep. yep. Um, Frank Vandenbroek, he... He'd get start money everywhere he went, like for the races and stuff, because he's a mm. big name. And he he's like, and our team director Nico Matan, who's personality, he won getting Wevel Goodman pairing mm. these prologues and stuff like that. So he, uh, Nico was the director, and VDB would have been out of start. And he's like, oh, I want to go in the car with Nico. And he's like, he's on the radio. They give I, I was certainly one of the two riders. They used to just give me a radio and someone else. And because <laughs> Frank uh, said, yeah, just like the others maybe didn't need it, or whatever, but. Yeah. They're, they're in their car and they're just like instructing me through everything and like telling, talking to me the whole time and giving me tactics and doing this and doing that. Was that helpful? Yeah, massively. Yeah, gold. Right. And um, but it was really weird because talking to Nico. So fast forward a week, Frank died. So <sighs> go back to the race. He was funny. I've been talking to Nico about it multiple times, but he was he could have done the race, but he chose not to. He didn't even have to be there. But he's like, he says to Nico, I want to be in the car with you. You know, like this is our. We're team, you know, you were my director. It's my last year race. You know, it's a bit funny about stuff. 
Mm. But he, wanted, he really wanted to be in the car with Nico and he really wanted to be in the radio with me. And he's like, that's the last ever race he ever saw. Jeez. Wow. And yeah, I won it. But like, I had a teammate in the move and I actually started the move with about eight or 10K to go, but it was pissing rain and slippery and miserable and windy and wet. And yeah, it was pretty amazing. It's a pretty special moment to look back on. I know it's probably a shit result for a lot of people, but it's, uh, for me, it couldn't have oh, <laughs> yeah. got much better. So yeah. yeah. Shit, that, that's Probably amazing. Probably should man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> giving myself 10, 10 years of less pain. <laughs> well, also 100 less wins as well. Yeah, 150 maybe. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Yeah, there there it is. Yeah, Finally. 100 if you count hell rides. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we got it. Finally. Yeah, Thank fuck for that. What a, what a way to just go out. Oh, mate. How good was that? How good Brilliant. was the master of winning? I mean, if you can't get something out of that, whether it be performance or just as a fan, yeah. it was a pleasure to be involved in, but it was also a pleasure to listen back to, Scotty, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. And, like, you can see that that pathway, you know, how he got into cycling. Allah, when he asked to get into cycling, they said, no, go away. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he had to step into cycling on his own. Then he got a legend to help him. And then he had some, you know, great experiences along the way, but also some tough stuff. And then he's still riding. So, you know, from being a 14-year-old or 13-year-old, he's still riding now as a 38-year-old. So you don't sort of stick around continually on that performance pathway if you don't love it. And you also got to go deep into it, don't you? And that's where that wisdom came out of. Yeah. The passion really come through for me. And that's from start to finish. So... Mm. Um, you may have, uh, or listeners may have heard when he was talking about, you know, the Sid Patterson interactions and getting him involved in cycling initially. And and that was real when he was saying he had goosebumps, you know, I, I recall back to the interview and, and he genuinely was, he had the yeah. chills and, and yeah. to listen to it as well, because it meant so much to him. As an interviewer, I was inspired by the way he brought that across. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And that was evidence what about the all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, that story we were told where he, they did that standing start race at Sandown Racetrack. So for people who don't know, Sandown Racetrack is a car racing track, like a NASCAR sort of setup, or a, I don't even know what they're called. Not Formula One anyway. <laughs> that's how much I know about motorsport. But there was a, like a stand, wasn't it like a standing 200 metre or 300 metre sprint? Yeah. And his dad went and worked out where the flattest part of that, flat, that flat sprint was. was. And then he stood at the end so Tommy could sort of line himself up and go in a straight line towards his dad on the other side of the fence and that, because that was the flattest, fastest way. Yeah. That type of attention to detail, Ross. Yeah, yeah. Again, which was evidence from start to finish. And, you know, you talk about mastery and, and that's that attention to detail that, that can make up that ability to, to be at the top of your game. Yeah. I just want to go back on and, and maybe touch on some of the training sessions, just just in reference to that yeah. uh, attention to detail. I mean, the 200-kilometre training sessions behind the moto at 50Ks mm. an hour to get you in that form and to have that base behind you, sensational. Well, just amazing mm. to hear the, the hard work that goes into to race day and, and getting yourself in the best condition that you possibly can. Mm. Yeah, and as he said, you, not only you need to do that work, but you've got to find someone who's committed to do it, like to ride the moto that paces you. 
So they've got to be willing to give up five hours, six hours, seven hours as well. And you've got to be able to, as the athlete, you've got to be able to keep them engaged and on side and, you know, that relationship going because it, you can't do it without them. So there's a whole level of sort of commitment to the cause, isn't it? Yeah, I really also like, Scotty, how Tommy spoke to some of the connections that he had throughout his career. Obviously, there was Sid Patterson initially who got him into the sport and his father and grandfather. Obviously, that was key in the initial um, start-up of his career. But guys like Paul Regari, his coach, who um, mm. you know brought the best out of him, um, the relationship he had with Baden-Cook, uh, all the way up mm. to Frank Vanderbrook, who obviously a legend of the yeah. sport um, and one of the greats in, in Belgian cycling. Um, and the connection that Tommy had for him and them was real. Like it wasn't just yeah. a, a sport thing that they had going on. Like there was a genuine connection and, and a real drive to help each other out there. Yeah. Yeah, so there, that little story at the end there um, where he won that race in GVA's hometown, I mean, you talk about the connection. So what does it feel like to have Frank in the car helping you out, knowing he's a legend and he's come back for this one last race to help him out? And then seven to ten days later, he's died. It's like, oh, jeez. Talk about things getting real and deep and meaningful. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Mm. And obviously, look, we're pulling it apart here, but only because of the quality of the stuff that Tommy spoke to. But, you know, there's some uh, some references to stuff that we've spoken about in past podcasts, the, the influence of power meters in cycling, um, the training and, and the high power and, and the little things that he did in his training sessions. And also that... Obviously, he's at a high end in terms of the strategy in race, but you know we've, we've tried to get a bit of an insight as to the fans' view of, of what we think's happening, but to hear him talk to it, there's some fantastic insights there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and with our background, Rossi, in coaching and performance coaching and that, uh, there's some parts of what um, Tommy says in this, this sort of perspectives he's got, I, I feel are, are absolutely elite as well. And just to even, like you said, to use that power meter example, just not getting caught up because it's like you might have the numbers, but can you get across the line first? You know, and what else does it take? It's, you can't just rely on, oh, yeah, I can hold this much speed for this long, but what else does it take to get over the line? And then, you know, I love that when he was saying, well, what is your weapon? What is your strength? And how do you get that to play out in a race? Especially when other races are trying to sort of stop you from allowing it to, to play out in a race. So... It's that next level stuff to be able to just get the get the job done, get the result, rather than just rely on oh well I've done all this good stuff that should be enough. No, no, you've got to you've got to find ways to make that result happen. Keep finding ways, and that's what happens in a race too. You know, you might be good early, and then someone does something. It's like you got to keep. What's next? What now? What do I need to do now? What do I need to do now? As you said, when your heart rate's at one eighty, you know that's sort of the, some of the stuff that the good racers can do, like a Peter Sagan. Sure, he, he can do that. And then we're watching the Giro right now. You know, Fernando Gaviria, uh, since he's left Quick Step, nothing against him. I don't know the story, but he, he came up. I'm branching here, but Gaviria came up at the same time as Caleb Ewan, and they were at the same level and the same speed and everything. And then since he's left Quick Step, he's just he's disappeared. And so you wonder if he has those same sorts of skills about, okay, things aren't going too well here. What do I do? What do I need to do differently? And as a result, in this duo, he has tried some stuff. So at least he's probably, he feels like he's more in the game. But um, yeah, that's what I appreciate in Tommy, is that sort of, that clarity. 
Yeah, look, appreciative is certainly what I was, and I'm sure you, you obviously spoke to him a lot more than what I get the opportunity to, but really appreciative to have that time with him to dissect it. And almost, in fact, you may have heard, uh, listeners may have heard a few times throughout the interview where he said, oh, you know, went off in a different sort of tangent and said, oh, there's another podcast. So hopefully yeah. we can get an opportunity to dig deeper into some of the other topics that we touched on. Yeah, One thing sure. I really liked at the end, and, and listeners would have just heard it, and we were sort of reaching for it a little bit and it took a little bit to coax out because, you know, sometimes some guests just get, you know, keep their cards close to chest, but we just got a bit of an insight to the man. We got some half-wheel and swagger out just towards the end, um, maybe just as a pointer of how many wins how many wins he could have had or how many do you want to count? You know, you want to count hell rides? Yeah, yeah, I'm up for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That was great. Fantastic, and that, and in that moment, that's uh, that's the competitiveness too. That's that dogged competitiveness. You know, it's like, hang on a minute, you're not going to rip me off fifty wins there. I'm not going to let that go just to be polite. Yeah. You know, I hold my tongue most of the time, but I'm not holding it on this one. Yeah, and, I, and that's that's what it takes. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Look, Scotty, it was fantastic, mate. We really hope that that listeners enjoyed it. The half wheel and fans uh, get something out of it some entertainment and, and some great stories to listen to. But hopefully, for those who reach for that high performance, hopefully some some tips, some ideas that might take them forward in yeah. their riding, whether it be in a race or, or just on the, the Saturday bunchie that they're on, yeah, hopefully there's something there for everyone. Yeah, and that's, that's again, that's another call-out. If people do want some tips, we can get Tommy on. He can, he can answer some of these sort of um, tips that they might – you know, specific questions they might have around training and performance and racing and that sort of stuff. Absolutely. We loved it. It was great yeah. to get finally get this one out. We're going to be getting in a bit more of a routine now. I can feel it. Um, the vibe's good. The energy's good. So I look forward to getting some more content out for those half-wheeling fans. Yeah, looking forward to it, Ross. Good on you. <laughs>